0: guilt-ridden, can be so sensitive, forsaken, they just don't measure up to what they think it ought to be, and, and they just would rather crawl in a hole and die. <clears throat> in fact, some go so far uh, that think the only form of escape is suicide. You know, it's the tenth leading cause of death in this country is suicide, where people... Uh, And and there's a variety of reasons why people would consider ending life to be better than continuing life, but clearly one of those is a sense of guilt, forsakenness, I'm not who I need to be, I can't change, I can't do any better. And so they think to end it is better. The story we have here with Judas is really one of two suicides in the Bible, There are a couple others regarding soldiers falling on swords, but I'm speaking about this intentionality of ending life over guilt and forsakenness. You see it all the way back in 2 Samuel 17, where a friend of King David counseled against him, betrayed him, went with Absalom, his son, and and when that plan went awry, he went out and hung himself. And here you have actually the second David, who is also betrayed by a friend. And when his plan fails, he commits suicide as well. And what, what Matthew does is, we don't really know when exactly this happened, but Matthew inserts this event into the story of Jesus being taken to Pilate. And he does that for reasons that we'll see as we go through the sermon. But I want you to see in chapter 27, we're starting something different here. When morning came, it's Friday. It's the last day of Jesus's earthly life. He will be crucified at the end of the day. And the whole chapter is just on this one day. And in this day, we're going to see, I, I really want to try to draw some theological truths from these three characters. Sometimes a narrative is challenging to preach. It doesn't lay out in a clear, it's a story it's telling you, and it isn't, it isn't always easy to pull an outline. But I just want to look at these three characters, Judas and his conflicted conscience, and, and the Sanhedrin, and what I would say, they had kind of a seared conscience, and then Jesus, he is the main character in the story, though he says nothing. And he has this, this just purity of conscience, just purity. It's beautiful. So we're going to look at these three, but let me give you the context first. If you look with me at the first two verses, Matthew is kind of setting us on the page, and he's continuing it from last week. It says, When morning came, They gathered together and took counsel. Now, if you were here last week and you remember last week, you'd know that they had already taken counsel that night. I mean, between probably 1 and 3 in the morning, they had taken counsel, and they determined that he was guilty of blasphemy and he was deserving of death. So it was a done deal back last night. So why are they doing it in the morning again? I think there's really two reasons. One would be, that they want to give an air of legitimacy to this kangaroo trial that they just had. The law stipulated that you could not hold a trial and issue a conviction at night. Why? Well, because a lot of bad things happen at night. And they wanted to make trials open and public and fair. And so they wanted to give an air of legitimacy, gathering together again and basically reconvicting him of what he was already determined to be guilty of the night before. But then secondly, and this is much more of a practical reason why they did it, they had to get together and figure out how they're going to convince Pilate to bring about an execution. While in John 18 we learn that the Jews had great authority, but they didn't have the authority to put a man to death. They needed Rome to do that. And so they had to come up with a plan on how to bring him to Pilate and convince him that it made sense that he should put him to death. And so they brought the information that Jesus gave. Remember how Jesus last week had said, you're going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God, coming in the clouds of heaven. So kind of that kingly royal language. And so they'll bring this up to Pilate and argue that he's seditious. He's against Rome. And therefore, it's in Rome's best interest to end his life. Now, remember Pilate. This wouldn't be a hard thing to do with Pilate. He was anti-Semitic. He was wrathful. He was vengeful. We'll hear more about him in a couple of weeks. But let me say this, that, that he was not really a governor in the sense of governing. He was more of a prefect, a military leader that was just keeping the peace. So he was... An expedient ruler and a harsh one at that. And so that's the scene we have. Jesus has finished his ecclesial, his church trial, and now he's being taken. Judas delivered Jesus to the priests. The priests have now delivered Jesus to Pilate, and then Pilate's going to deliver Jesus to the cross where he will die. So that's kind of the scene. So let's look at the three characters in this passage. Let's look at Judas first. Look at back at verse three, because you're going to see, if you will, again, if we were filming this as a movie, there would be a major shift now to Pilate, or excuse me, to Judas. And you see, what, then when Judas is betrayer, well, how did he fit in here? Remember, this is what I said last week is called a parenthesis. It's the insertion of a story to teach us a lesson, to to give us truth between coming from the priest to Pilate. But, But Judas, Matthew's the only one that records the final acts of Judas, and they are significant. I think you'll agree. Here, Judas seems to have made a change. You know, he's changed his mind, it says. What does this mean? Some people think he converted. One commentator argued that he converted. Uh, Others think that he simply wanted to retract what he did because he didn't think his betrayal would lead to the death of Jesus. He thought maybe... To betray Jesus, to put him in front of the council. Maybe that would prompt Jesus to move with power and authority and bring miracles and authority. And he can calm storms and he can raise the dead. Maybe this will force him to be in a corner to do some kingly act, to throw off Rome and to establish Israel. That's what some, maybe that's what he did. Maybe that's some of his motivation. But let me propose a different idea to you. Notice what it says in 3. It says, when he saw Jesus. When he saw Jesus. Remember from last week? What was the tripping point for Peter? Remember how Jesus looked at Peter, and Peter saw Jesus. And then he began to weep bitterly, because he saw the face of Christ. And here Judas sees the face of one he says, he saw that Jesus was condemned. An innocent man condemned, and he changed his mind. He did change something, didn't he? I mean, he gave back the money. He didn't profit from the money that he had received for betraying Jesus. But what else did he do? Well, he he confessed his sin. He said, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. I mean, he's not rationalizing it. He's not justifying it. He's simply saying, I did it. He's saying what it was. I, I sinned. Not only that, but he declares Jesus innocent. He takes the bold step to say, I was wrong. He's innocent, which would, by the way, implicate these leaders. You see a sort of desperation, don't you? You see kind of a, a, a guiltedness, a, a sense of, I've done something wrong. I, I've done something evil. There's a, a spiritual consternation. He goes to these spiritual leaders, if, if you can call them that, and, and they, they give him no help. They give him no help. And so what does he do? He, he's a man that's desperate. He's laden with guilt. He knows that he's failed. And so he goes into, it says, he takes the pieces of silver and he throws them into the treasury. Now, there's two Greek words for temple, and this is the inner temple. This is where he's not supposed to go. And he throws the coin in there. He says, you won't take it from me, I'll make sure you get it. He doesn't throw them into the courtyard where everybody's gathered, where anybody could just grab them and run, but he throws them into the inner temple where the priests are forced to get them. And then what's he do? He has no options in his mind. And so he departs, and he hangs himself. It's a very dark story. Um, the question is, you know, is this remorse really repentance? You know, what's happening to Judas's conscience at this point? It, it looks like it, but as we look closer, maybe not. You know, when you think about this, first he says that. Um, it changed. He's changed his mind. It says now. It, it, interesting. There's, there's two Greek words. One Greek word is used for repentance, for sin and reconciliation with God. And another another word is used for regret or remorse. Kind of that sense of when you see the outcome isn't as you desired or expected. You feel bad. You know. You feel bad over the results of something. It's kind of a sorrow over consequences. It's not really a repentance, per se. It's more of just a sorrow over things not working out. He says in here, he does say, I have sinned. But the tense of what he says, the verbal tense indicates that I sinned in this one act. I I did something wrong against Jesus at this point. He's not saying he's a sinner before God. He's not saying I am like the man in Luke 15 that says, have mercy on me, I am a sinner. I'm a sinner through and through. He's just saying, I've sinned. And and notice, too, that he confesses, but he doesn't confess to Jesus. He confesses to the Sanhedrin. I mean, it seems as if he's looking for a measure of relief, not redemption. He's looking for salve on his soul, not necessarily salvation. He's looking for release of the guilt, not reconciliation with God. He doesn't see Jesus as one that can remove the guilt and the consternation of his soul. And so he tries to almost work with self-atoning ways. He's a man that clearly sees sin, but he doesn't see salvation. You know, John Owen speaks about this. John Owen was a great theologian, English theologian, 17th century. And he speaks about it in his book, Mortification of Sin. And he speaks about, the man who's convicted of sin but he doesn't repent of his sin through the power of the holy spirit and here's what here's how he describes the man or the woman you feel the conviction of sin you feel that you've done the wrong thing you do feel a sense that you have failed significantly and you don't know what to do with it here's what he writes he says they combat without victory they have war without peace they're in slavery all their days They spend their strength for that which is not bread, and they labor for that which does not profit. This is the saddest warfare that any poor creature can be engaged in. A soul under the power of conviction from the law is pressed to fight against sin, but has no strength for the combat. They cannot but fight, and they can never conquer. They are like men thrust on the sword of enemies on purpose to be slain. The law drives them on, but sin beats them back. They're caught between this rock and a hard place. It's a a terrible predicament to be in. And when you look at Judas, Judas was a man of advantage. I mean, he had seen Jesus. He had witnessed all the miracles of Jesus. He heard the greatest teaching. He saw the greatest miracles. The greatest theological mind untangled things for him. He saw the greatest pastoral display of concern. I mean, he had it all. He saw it all. He was right there. And in his point of guilt and remorse and regret, he doesn't turn to a savior, but he turns to suicide. You know, for the the Christian here, I think there's a warning in us to discern the genuineness of our repentance. Have we truly repented? It's a question we need to ask. I think that is why Matthew put Judas after Peter. You know, when you look at Peter and then Judas, I I think any one of us in here could pick out a bunch of the similarities. They both were apostles. They both had witnessed many great things of Jesus. Uh, They both were warned that they would deny and betray. Uh, They both were prophesied about in the Old Testament. Uh, They both committed terrible acts. They both had deep remorse, and it says they both departed. One departed out into the night and one departed to death. But where the difference is, is in the repentance. That Peter genuinely repented as seen in the restoration and reconciliation with Jesus. Judas didn't. Judas felt bad, clearly. I mean, you can feel the weight of his conflicted conscience. You can feel the guilt that he had. You can feel the burden on his soul. But he didn't turn to Christ. He didn't cling to Christ for salvation. He didn't seek reconciliation with God. He didn't see his sins as against a holy God by which he needs a Savior to deliver him, one that will come and take away not just the sin, but the wrath and the judgment associated with the sin and to be established in a righteousness not his own. This is exactly what what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You know what I'm speaking about here? When you come to a place, and if you have, you can rejoice with me. When you come to a place of understanding that Jesus Christ was fully sufficient to satisfy the judgment against me for my sins, there is now no regret. We don't have regret anymore. We don't drag forgiven sins behind us. We cut them loose, they're gone. We're done with them. They have been satisfied. Justice has been satisfied. Grace has been extended to us in full measure. And there is no regret. But worldly guilt, which we experience, and many that all do, That leaves a death, a sentence of death. And this is why, this isn't just for the non-Christian here, that every person has to repent. If, If you're a Christian here and you've repented, this is ongoing. You know, repentance is just part of the walk of Christianity. That's why Paul says in Acts 24, 16, he says, So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. We're always repenting. We're always moving beyond the sins that we have committed Resting in and rejoicing over one that has saved us. So we want to test the genuineness of our repentance. In in fact, J.C. Rawl, another British pastor, um, he said this about the danger of late repentance. You know, you're with a person and they're older and they maybe have been given uh, terminal cancer. They've been given the diagnosis. And now all of a sudden, all those things that they wanted to get to, now they're going to get to them. And they begin thinking through life at a much deeper level than many of us live life on a daily level. And they begin thinking about it. And he says there's a danger with repenting late in life. And here's what he says. He says this is a point which deserves special attention. It's a common saying that it's never too late to repent. The saying, no doubt, is true if repentance be true. But unhappily, late repentance is often not genuine. It is possible for a man to feel his sins and be sorry for them, to be under strong convictions of guilt and express deep remorse, to be pierced in conscience and exhibit much distress of mind, and yet for all of this not repent with his heart. Present danger or the fear of death may account for all his feelings, but the Holy Spirit may have not done a work in his soul. We need the Spirit of God to bring conviction to us of our sins, that our sins are against God. So when David says in Psalm 51, against you only have I sinned, he's teaching an important truth. He's not saying that he didn't sin against other people. But ultimately, at the end of the day, all sin is against God. And if we don't see that, then our repentance is a worldly guilt. We're sorry that we got caught. We're sorry that we hurt somebody. We're sorry that it didn't work out right. We're sorry that our bad actions caused somebody pain. That's not repentance. Feeling bad is not repentance at all. And I think Judas is a prime example of that. He felt deep grief, but he didn't. He wasn't reconciled to God through the power of the Spirit. And this is a work of the Spirit, that the Spirit has to bring to us that light, that new principle within, which recognizes I have sinned against my neighbor, but I've also sinned against God, and I have to repent. And repentance, apart from that, is not repentance. Now if you're not a christian here you know what i'm still speaking about you know gk chesterton said that the universal experience of mankind is an uneasy conscience all of us know what it feels like to not have done it right to sin against somebody to err in a way that others are harmed we all know it god has given every one of us a conscience that innate knowledge of something not right that 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 image that he places upon us that we know you can see it in a 2-year-old child when he's not supposed to do something and he looks this way to grab it you know what you see it. it it's that intuitive knowledge that every one of us have in fact the puritans called the conscience god's deputy god's spies thomas aquinas the great theologian 12th century said this He said that the conscience is man's judgment of himself according to the judgment of God in him. God has placed his image, and so God is in a way, as it were, in this life, bringing up what he would judge by you judging yourself. Or Carl Henry said it's the other eye in your personality. You know, when you do something and you feel like you're watching yourself do something you shouldn't be doing, that's the conscience Now, the key thing is that the conscience can reveal sin to us, but it can't save us from sin. It can force us to look at sin, but it can't force us to repent of sin. So what do you do with the guilt? If you're not a Christian here and you don't see Christ, what do you do with the guilt that's just piling up in our life? I mean, think about it. As I think about my life, the years, my parenting, my husbanding, my working. My relationship with, with neighbors, coworkers, workers And that, that guilt just piles up more and more. What do you do with it? How do you relieve yourself the burden of all that accumulated guilt apart from a gospel that promises to send one to save? I mean, you're left with deep distress and burden. Great darkness and foreboding and fear of death, and fear of life, I would encourage you to consider Christ, that salvation is in Christ alone. And it's through the gospel that this, this is the whole idea of him taking on flesh to dwell among us that he might bear our sins and the guilt with our sins and die for them, that he might reconcile us to God. It's a beautiful message no other religion has anything that compares to this. They're all self-atoning religions. This is atonement from another and through another. Well, that's a conflicted conscience. Well, look with me, if you will, at the Sanhedrin. This is a seared conscience. This is a hardened conscience. This is, a, this is really pointing out to us the dangers of religion. Religion is dangerous apart from humiliation, repentance, and faith. Walking in humility. This religion is modeled by the Sanhedrin. They are particulars and detailists for the law. But they have no humility. They have no repentance. Uh, Look look at what they do. I mean, just let's study them for a minute. You know, when, when Judas comes... And uh, Well, when they move the trial to the morning. I I mean, they're trying to follow the letter of the law. We're going to reconvene and reconvict in the morning so that we can bring legitimacy to this kangaroo trial? Really? I mean, wasn't there somebody that would have said, something smells about this? We're just doing this to establish some false legitimacy to it? Or not just that, they convict a man without sin. You were here last week. You saw that no witnesses could produce it. Jesus had to produce the testimony of his own conviction. And do you notice who was never tried or who never was brought forward as a witness when they tried him the night before? They never asked Judas. Shouldn't they have asked Judas for some testimony? He was with them for three years. I mean, he would have known what he said, what he did. He would have surely been able to produce something. But he was silent. Why was Judas silent at the trial? Because he didn't have anything. He didn't have anything to say. He didn't have anything to bring to bear against this innocent one. That's okay, we can still convict him anyway. They'll take you know, they'll take Judas's work to betray him, but they won't take his testimony to acquit him. Or, or look at the facade of this religion when it says it's unlawful to take the money back that Judas gave. Really? You took the money from the treasury to betray them, but you won't take the money back because it's unclean, thereby really implicating themselves. I mean, and, and then they try to buy a potter's field. They try to buy a field from a potter so that they can bury foreigners who die in Jerusalem. They're going to do a good act to cover their bad acts. Isn't that clear? Or, or look at the ugliness of religion when When Judas is troubled of spirit, he comes to them and they say, see to it yourself. They're the spiritual guides of Israel. This man was truly conflicted and they had nothing for him. They had nothing. They said, see to it yourself. You know, I'd like to say none of us are like these people. I'm just explaining the story to you, but we're not like them. I'd like to say that to you. I'd like to distance myself from, very far from them. But I tell you, I, I, I hesitate to do that. I don't think I'd be serving you well. I, I, I mean, I, I think it, it bids us to consider, has our religion begin, begun to pick up these marks, if you will, of, of, a, of a searing or hardening conscience? You know, do we find ourselves theologically hair-splitting on issues? you know do do we tend to find an ability to really pickyune theological differences and and then justify a degree of separation from people because of that you know, Are we guilty of straining out the gnat and swallowing the camel? Do you remember that metaphor Jesus gave? So if you were a priest and you were drinking wine at dinner, you know, wine, of course, is sweet. It would attract gnats in the evening. And so you're going to drink it and your teeth are going to just be open a little bit because you don't want to swallow a gnat because that's an insect and that's unlawful to eat but you're going to swallow a camel, but you've strained out the gnat. It's this idea of, I'm really going to be focused on the the, the minor issues of life, but I'm not going to be loving God or loving my neighbor or taking care of the lost or helping the poor or the infirmed, but you know what, I've got my devotions. I read my Bible every day this week, but I've I've been a monster to my spouse or I've ignored the spiritual development of my children. You know, it's the going after the Picayune or, or finding certain things in the lives of others that I will judge. But I won't go so far as to ask them why they do what they do. I won't try to understand why they're struggling in that area. I'll just render a judgment upon their behavior without any consideration of their soul. But I'm smart. And I, I know what they're doing wrong, but I have no compassion for them or or even. Uh, another example would be the, the harsh judgment that when people do come to us, we don't labor with people. You know, if they cross us enough times, I'm done with you. I'm done with you. I'm done. I've worked with you. I, I'm not, I'm not going to work with you anymore. You know, the, the, see to it yourself. You know, they, they struggle with some issues, and we're just, see to it yourself. I've already tried with you. I actually see sometimes a lot of our Christian parenting in this behavior, this behavioral modification. This, you know, when when parents, and I've said it myself, and I've repeated it to you, I can't believe my child did that. And now a few years beyond parenting, I'm like, well, why wouldn't you believe it? I mean, they're sinners. You're, you're aghast that they'd lie to you? Why? You lie. I mean, they're not even born again. You're born again and you lie. Or, or you fade or, you know, you do that dance, but we know what it is. It's not telling the whole truth, and you're trying to skirt with some. You know, if you decrease ten percent of the story, it's going to save you enough face that it doesn't look like what it really was. And 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 we have to be careful as Christian parents that we don't just cultivate little legalists in our home. We manage their behavior, Christian. This is what Christians do. You know, that's why Martin Luther would always do two things when he catechized his children. He would teach them the law. He would teach them the Ten Commandments, that's how he starts out his catechism, to let them know they're lawbreakers. You're a lawbreaker. You're a lawbreaker. But he'd also teach them the gospel, because the gospel is the means through which we find Christ who kept the law. And so our hope is not in obedience to the law, but our hope is in the one who was obedient to the law, and he did it in our stead. And so it really is, it may be in our Christian parenting, it may be in your life, but I would encourage you to, to take the time to consider where you are with this. I don't want us to distance ourselves too quickly from this. Okay, let's look at the third character in the story, Jesus. Again, I said he says nothing here, and yet he casts a very long shadow over the whole story. And what we see in Jesus here is we see one who is the epitome of purity and conscience. Look at how he behaves in this situation. Because we're all looking at the same situation and how everybody's reacting to it. Jesus, you see an absolute willingness, don't you, to die for you. Jesus is willing to die for you. Look at the passivity of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying he's uninvolved. I'm saying he's passive. Note in verse 2, they bound him. They led him away and they delivered him over to Pilate. He's passive in every one of those things. Judas delivered him to the priest, the priest delivered him to Pilate, and Pilate's going. He's passive. Now remember, Jesus, if you want to get a definition of who he is, look in Colossians 1, 15, where you know that through him and by him all things have been created. And for him they've been created. He sustains all things. So, so we have a picture of Jesus Christ being absolutely glorious and powerful, and yet he's passively, willingly going to death for us. Why? He knows he's the only means of salvation for the souls of men and women. But he's willingly laying down his life, willingly laying it down, obediently, joyfully, willingly putting it before the wicked. But not just that. People do do that when they're guilty and they've finally gotten tired of running. They turn themselves in. They're willing to pay their due. They're willing to face the the music because, you know, they've done these things and they just got to, yeah, it's finally time for me to fess up. But notice in verse 3, he was innocent. He did nothing wrong. Judas testified to that. Judas would be able. He lived with him for three years. Carol, after three years of marriage, she could not have said, he's an innocent man. She couldn't have said that. Even if she wanted to, she couldn't because she lived with me. She knew that I was not an innocent man. But, but he could have said he was not innocent. He said he was innocent. He was guileless. He, he had no deceit in his mouth. He He was blameless in every way, and yet willing to lay down his life. Innocent of every sin. Pure. No stain. Not just that, but he was resting in the sovereign plan of God. Don't think Jesus was swept away in some political machinery. Don't think he was kind of unaware or or just unparticipating. He knew exactly what he was doing. In every way, he said, if you remember back in chapter 20 of Matthew, here's what he says to his apostles. See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. He knew what was happening, and he laid down his life. He knew it was the plan of God. Now, now listen, God's design was that the son would die. It was the design, even to the potter's field. Look with me back in, in 9 and 10. It says, then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Now this is an interesting couple of verses here. What Matthew is showing us is this, that, that Jesus, even the money that was given to Judas to betray Jesus and to be thrown back into the temple and to purchase the field that foreigners, unclean people who died in Jerusalem, would be put in an unclean cemetery. Even that was down to the design of God. God scripted this out that even that was part of the storyline that God had of bringing the son to a point of crucifixion. Now, Matthew quotes Jeremiah. This is actually a quote from Zechariah 11, 11 to 13, and Jeremiah. Oftentimes, the gospel writers would refer to the major prophet, like you see it in Mark chapter 1. When he quotes from both Malachi and Isaiah, he quotes it as Isaiah, giving the major prophet the lead be well, most well known but this is this is a prophecy and it's a difficult one to understand it really ha- draws from Zechariah 18 and 19 perhaps 32 and and Zechariah sorry Jeremiah 18, 19, 32, and Zechariah 11. And what he's doing is he's building a little mini-theology, a mini-biblical theology. He's drawing together these themes that are showing that the shepherd of Israel, that is the last oracle in Zechariah about the shepherd of Israel being rejected and not being valued. And and Zechariah was prophesying when the great shepherd came, he would be rejected and he would be devalued such that he was only given 30 pieces of silver for his life. That's the price of a slave that they didn't see him, they rejected him. Donald Carson, a, a New Testament theologian, a contemporary New Testament theologian, said this. He said, Matthew sees these verses not merely as a number of verbal and thematic parallels to Jesus' betrayal, but a pattern of apostasy and rejection that must find its ultimate fulfillment in the rejection of Jesus, who was cheaply valued and rejected by the Jews, and whose betrayal money was put to a purpose that pointed to their own destruction. So the rejection and the buying of the field was just pointing to the end that they would have. Okay, so the question in your mind be, why is God so destined? Why is he so determined to put the Son to death? Well, it's to complete the plan of God, to remove our guilt, to remove the guilt of our sin. You know the beginning of the story. The beginning of the story is in Genesis 2 when they were naked and unashamed. They were naked without shame. It doesn't mean they weren't embarrassed over one another's bodies. It means they had no sin. There was no shame. You know how when you sin, you're kind of ashamed, you're kind of embarrassed, you don't want to be found out? They had no shame. Well, when, in Genesis 3, when they sinned, what did they do? Well, they got embarrassed and they clothed themselves. They hid themselves from each other. They hid themselves from God. They turned on each other. They turned on God. There was division, disharmony, because guilt and shame came into the relationship. But God promised them that the woman would have a seed, and the seed would crush the head of the serpent and would take upon himself the sin and the guilt and the shame so that they could be reconciled. And you know, Jesus hung on the cross naked, to bear the shame for us. And so this story is about finding relief, finding resolution for our guilt and our shame and our sin. That Jesus Christ, the perfect one, is going to the cross so as to bear our sin, so that he will bear our shame. He will will bear the sin and the shame and the guilt that pile on top of that, and then the judgment of God righteously distributed because of the sin so that we might be reconciled and restored to God as children without shame. That there is no shame. And, And when we understand this, this role that Jesus has played, then our affections for Christ should swell. That we don't have regret anymore, we have rejoicing. Why? Because we've been cleansed. Listen to what the writer in Hebrews says. In chapter 10, he says, Brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain That is, the the curtain is a picture of the curtain between the Holy of Holies where God resided in the temple and where nobody could go except the high priest once a year. It says, the way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. So there's a parallel there. Through his flesh and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. We have it clean conscience now in Christ and so we repent we're thankful to repent we're thankful for Christ that he has done this for us so we see in this picture here we see in this planned death of Jesus we see the conflicted conscience of Judas and the the fake repentance and I'm asking you discern the nature of your repentance the genuineness talk to another brother or sister in this church about the nature of your repentance. Please, for a minute, if if you could be so bold to have a conversation with somebody, even after church, say, I would like to have coffee with you to talk about the nature. I I mean, do you not sense its importance? It has eternal ramifications for you. So speak with someone about it if you're uncertain in any way. And, And then we see the seared conscience of the Sanhedrin. Listen, there's a lot of folks in the Christian church that fit in this bucket. I don't want any one of us to be one of them. And, and so engage in conversation with yourself and with others in this. And then, and then meditate over the beauty of Christ. Just meditate on his glory and his beauty. Let me pray for us right now and then I'll have the servers come up in just a moment and serve. Father, your plan is perfect in every way embraced beautifully by your Son all meant to deliver us from our sin and shame and our guilt. Our guilt, our guilt. Father, bring your spirit to bear on our lives, that we would, we would not be like David, who when he kept silent, his bones wasted away. But let us be blessed, whose sin is forgiven. Let us confess to you, Father, that we might rejoice in the cleansing work that you've done, that we would have repented without regret. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If, if I may press your minds for a moment more before we come to the table, I want to orient you to this table with just two simple thoughts. The table is a proclamation. It's, this table, though it does not vocalize a word, it speaks to you right now. And it proclaims to you when you come to the bread and to the cup. It proclaims to you a picture that Jesus has borne the curse. He, he hung on a tree. Now, let me draw a parallel. Judas hung on a tree and bore the curse of his sin. He had no Savior. He hung on a tree, but he had no relief. Jesus, likewise, according to Galatians, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ, Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So you see, Judas bears his own sin. He bears the breaking of the law. But we now come to to the table of one who also has hung on a tree. But he's hung on a tree to bear our sin and the guilt with it, that we can come with hearts cleansed, cleansed of a guilty conscience, cleansed of sin, rejoicing, thanking. So, so when you come to the table this morning, approach it, having confessed your sin, which we'll do in a moment silently, but considering the great work that now we approach God through a curtain, that is his flesh, that our hearts have been sprinkled clean, that we've repented without regret. So let's take a minute now and just do that. Let's consider the nature of our repentance. Let's consider the nature of what we have walked in this week, and let's confess silently that we might come to the table for grace and a gracious reminder of his work.